Amid the chaos and conflict in the world, these people are actively seeking peace on earth. People are great. People are good. People want peace. But really what we have to do is commit ourselves and our lives and take risks for peace wherever we live. Hear Nobel Peace Prize laureate Mairead McGuire, nonviolent communication expert Marshall Rosenberg, and Mahatma Gandhi's grandson Arun Gandhi. He said we commit passive violence all the time, every day, consciously and unconsciously. We have to become the change we wish to see in the world. Plus tips on peacemaking efforts in the workplace, in the family, and in prisons. I'm all right today. Today I'm doing okay. There hasn't been very many days whenever I could say that for my past, but today I'm all right. Stay tuned for Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Welcome to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, featuring compelling moments from recent programs in our ongoing series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider. Ahead on our program, we'll hear from people who have devoted much of their energies and creative talents toward the practice of peacemaking. Later in the program, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate from Northern Ireland, Mairead McGuire, nonviolent communication expert Marshall Rosenberg, and some returned Peace Corps volunteers. Also, others who have ideas about bringing more peace in our daily lives and to troubled areas around the globe. It's fair to say that one person all of these people hold in the highest regard is Mahatma Gandhi, whose use of nonviolent social protest challenged apartheid in South Africa and imperial rule by the British in his homeland of India. During a recent Peace Talks episode, host Carol Boss talked with Arun Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, who recalled his time with his grandfather. I think the most vivid uh, memory that I have of living with him as a young boy was his uh, lesson in anger management. You know, I was a very angry young man when I was growing up in South Africa, and I became a victim of uh, prejudices, was beaten up by whites and then by blacks because both of them didn't like the color of my skin. And it filled me with a lot of rage, and I wanted eye-for-an-eye justice. And uh, that's when... Uh, my parents took me to India, and I had the opportunity to live with grandfather. And the first lesson that he taught me was about understanding that anger and being able to channel that energy into positive action. He said that anger is like electricity. It is just as useful and just as powerful if we use it intelligently, but it can be just as deadly and destructive if we abuse it. So just as we channel electricity and bring it into our lives and use it for the good of humanity, we must learn to channel anger in the same way so that we can use that energy for the good of humanity rather than abuse it. And he, I did this for many years. He taught me how to channel an anger, how to write an anger journal uh, with the intention of finding a solution and and so on. And I did this for many years, and it helped me considerably in understanding and channeling the energy into positive action. How old were you when you got to live with him? I was 12 uh, when I went to him, and I lived for about 18 months. You know, I've been told the story. Um, I haven't heard you tell it, and I'm sure you've you've told it many, many times about you doing your lessons and tossing the pencil away. So I'm wondering if you could share that with listeners. 
Yes, I think that story really brought to me the profoundness of his philosophy of non-violence. Until then, I had this limited understanding of non-violence as we all have today, and that is uh, non-violence being the opposite of violence. And our concept of violence is just the physical use of violence where, you know, fighting and killing and murders and rapes and all that. And um, this incident really in that happened when I was coming back from school and I had this little pencil in my hand and I threw that pencil away because uh, I thought it was too small for me to use. And that evening when I asked him for a new pencil, instead of giving me one, he subjected me to a lot of questions. He wanted to know how the pencil became small and where did I throw it away and all that kind of thing. And I couldn't understand why he was making such a fuss over a little pencil until he told me to go out and look for it. And I said, you must be joking. I said, you don't expect me to look for a little pencil in the dark? He said, oh, yes, I do. Here's a flashlight. Take this and go out and look for the pencil. And I must have spent about two hours searching for it. And when I finally found it and brought it to him, he said, now I want you to sit here and learn two very important lessons. The first lesson is that even in the making of a simple thing like a pencil, we use a lot of the world's natural resources, and when we throw them away, we are throwing away the world's natural resources, and that is violence against nature. And the second lesson is that even in the uh, you know in a affluent society, we can, we can afford to buy all these things in bulk, and so we overconsume the resources of the world, and because we overconsume them, we are depriving people elsewhere of these resources, and they have to live in poverty, and that is violence against humanity. And then to drive home this message, he made me draw a family tree of violence uh, on the same principles as a genealogical tree, with violence as the grandparent with two offsprings, physical violence and passive violence. And every day before I went to bed, I had to examine everything that happened during the day and analyze it and put it in their appropriate places on that tree. If it was the kind of violence where physical force is used, then it would go under physical violence. But if it's the kind of violence where no force is used, and yet, uh, you know, I've been able to hurt people, then it would go under passive violence. And when I began to do this, within a few months, I filled up a whole wall in my room with acts of passive violence. And that's when I realized how much uh, passive violence we commit. And then Grandfather explained to me the connection between the two. He said, we commit passive violence all the time, every day, consciously and unconsciously, and that generates anger in the victim, and the victim then resorts to physical violence to get justice. So it is passive violence that fuels the fire of physical violence. So logically, if we want to put out the fire of physical violence, we have to cut off the fuel supply, and since the fuel supply comes from each one of us, we have to become the change we wish to see in the world. 
It's rather profound for a young boy, isn't it? It is. Um, I, I'm just, I just regret the fact that I wasn't old enough to understand at that time how profound this lesson was. It took me many years to, to understand it as I grew up. I'm wondering if you might have some other suggestions for how um, your grandfather's teachings and actions can impact our daily lives. Because we live in a materialistic society all over the world, uh, we have been taught to become selfish and self-centered. And that kind of an attitude, when it comes to building relationships, and if we are going to uh, you know, think about what am I going to gain from this relationship and build relationships on that kind of negative philosophy, it will never last. And so we've got to stop exploiting each other and start uh, building relationships that are based on respect and understanding. And if we have that kind of uh, relationship, then, uh, you know, we reduce conflict very substantially. I saw it even in the present circumstances that we have faced with uh, terrorism, uh, I wrote an article uh, just after 9-11, and I suggested that this is not the time for us to seek revenge. It's time for us to do some introspection to find out what our relationship with uh, the rest of the world uh, is and, and how can we improve that relationship. And if we improve that relationship and and base it on respect and understanding for each other, then we would have been able to deal with terrorism much better and quicker than we are doing it now. Violence, you know, it, if at all, uh, it is a very uh, temporary solution. It's not a long-lasting solution. That's Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, Arun Gandhi, who himself has been a tireless advocate of nonviolence, establishing the M.K. Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1991. Some who give in to the use of violence are convicted of crimes and land in prison. Most serve their sentence and return to society. It seems that that whole experience would be a workshop in conflict resolution. The crime itself often has roots in some inner conflict that leads to an outer conflict that is handled inappropriately or violently. While in prison, inmates usually have an opportunity to work on the inner conflicts that got them there. Some take advantage, do the work, access programs, and then they're out and given another chance to address conflict differently in their lives. On one Peace Talks program, our host Carol Boss talked with former prison inmates who grew up in substance-abusing families. One, Alicia, began using at the age of 11, and progressed from alcohol to marijuana to cocaine to meth. At 21, she was convicted of attempted first-degree murder and served five years of a prison sentence. Now Alicia is out, rearranging her life, working at a restaurant in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and studying business communications at a local college. She has two young daughters who live with grandparents out of state. On our show, she recalled some of the prison programs that helped her learn to deal nonviolently with the conflicts in her life. Um, I took a corrective thinking course, and it really... Um, blunt, bluntly um, broke down our barriers to us, like playing the victim role and blaming others. And, you know, it just really made, it, made, made me take a look at how corrupt my thought process was 
Like, you don't, you're not supposed to hold people's secrets. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to hold secrets. And ever since I was little, I've been holding everyone's secrets. What they've done to me, what they've done to other people, what they've done to themselves, you know? And the classes like that, they help me to understand that that's not the way that you're supposed to. There's a correct way that, you know, steps that you go to think things through. There's a process that, you know, you have to go through in order to make a sound decision based on morals and respect, you know? And so that class, I got a lot out of that class. What other class did you get a lot out of? Um, I took anger management, and I got a lot out of it, but initially the class made me angry. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I don't know if I like this class. Cause whenever I come here, I'm okay, but when I come here, I feel angry. And they're like, it's okay to feel that way because that's what we're working on. And so um, it was like a lot of inside stuff that I had to – I had to get out because through all my life I just stuffed all that stuff and I didn't know that whenever you stuff it it doesn't go nowhere you know I just thought you just forget about it no you have to pull all that stuff out and put good stuff in in order to grow to be who you're supposed to be one of my favorite quote quotes that I love to live by it's by Janice Joplin she says um when I knew not I did what I knew now that I know better I do better and I really just I just love that because um because I didn't know any better. I thought that that was the life that I was born into. That was the life that, that I was to lead, and there was nothing else for me. But whenever I went to prison, just things started changing for me. I started seeing different, and there was there were people there to help me, to guide me. At first, I was like kind of leery because I didn't trust no one. I trusted myself, and that was it. And half the time, I didn't even trust, trust myself. And um, just through, you know, people showing me, me seeing that there's a new, different way, there's a better way, and... And then having people, you know, believe in me, like push me a little bit, you know, like, come on, you can do it. Just try it once, you know. And um, me being humble enough to accept their advice instead of just thinking I know everything. Um, just tearing the, down those walls of self-righteousness and all that, all the ego, the ego and all that stuff. And being humble and listening to people's advice and, you know, trying new things. Um, that's taken me, you know... I'm all right today. Today I'm doing okay. And there hasn't been very many days whenever I could say that for my past, but today I'm all right. You began to uh, take classes and, and you felt that they were um, giving you a new way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. Did did that change? Did you did you begin to have a sense of a, a future for yourself? What really changed for me whenever I can really like pinpoint was whenever I got my GED. That was like a big day for me because I never have it. Like, I never had accomplished anything in my life, you know, anything that I could be proud of, you know. And um, just to see, like, my teacher was so proud of me. And, and you know, it was something that I could show to my family because, you know, just to, just to be a good influence. Because I'm the oldest of six, and um, my brothers and sisters, they mean the world to me. And just to be a good influence on them. Um, I'm sorry. It's Okay. It just really means a lot to me to be able to do that. Do you need a moment? No, I'm fine. Thank you. So let's talk about what it was like for you when you got out of prison. How long have you been out? I've been out for a year and a half. What was that like to be in prison for five years and then be released? Where did you go? Um, I paroled into a program in Las Lunas, and it's called it was called La Entrada, and the counseling, the counselors there, I mean, they're just awesome. And um, they really helped me, and they were real supportive. 
and everything that I did. And, and they would call me. They will hold me accountable for my behaviors, too, because even though I was clean from drugs and alcohol, there was still my attitudes, my behaviors, you know, little not little, but things like that that I had to change in order to be all I can be because those things trap you up and you just fall into your old old ways, your old behaviors. And so they really helped guide me through that. Well, why don't you talk about what some of the um, the advice was that you got that was really important to you, that really helped you? Just to remain open and willing and patient, to give of myself freely, to be humble, to listen, not talk all the time, um, to be grateful. I've learned a lot through being grateful and just setting goals in my life. You know, I never had goals. I didn't even, you know, goals was like soccer game, you know. <laughs> I didn't really have goals. And it's good now because I'm starting to see, like, my life coming back. Um, not fast, but, like, I see little things. Like, my family, like, is back in my life. And I see my my papa for the first time in eight years last month. And he was here for three days. And it was good to see him, you know. My sister's here with me. My nephew, I haven't seen him for years. And through all the stuff that I put him through, They've always loved me, and i never been able to give love back, like, proper. So now I'm able to genuinely love people and care about them sincerely, as to just being something that said. That's Alicia, a former prison inmate, talking with Carol Boss about learning to deal with conflict differently now that she's conquered her addiction to drugs and alcohol and served five years in prison for attempted first-degree murder. The complete programs from which these excerpts have been taken can all be heard online at peacetalksradio.com, where there's lots more information about our radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. When we continue today's program, we'll hear from the man who originated a method of nonviolent communication that he teaches around the globe. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. More after this break. Welcome back to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special featuring highlights from our radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. As we talk with mediators and peacemakers working to reduce conflict in all kinds of circles, one person many of them reference is Marshall Rosenberg, founder and director of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. From the family room to the highest level peace negotiation, Rosenberg has taught nonviolent communication techniques that he has seen reduce conflict and improve relationships. Suzanne Kreider and I talked with Marshall Rosenberg before an auditorium audience. He believes our typical communication habits and societal structures disconnect us from our compassionate nature. Well, we've been living under structures that require educating people to believe that authority knows what's right for us to do. 
and that it's our job to do what authority tells us to do. And that if we don't, we deserve to be punished for that. If we do what authority says, we deserve to be rewarded. Now, that's a dangerous way to teach people because there's a lot of people who claim to be authorities and know what's right and have a lot of power and can educate people to do things that I think are rather violent. Like look at other people as enemies and we can be educated to think that we have to punish them because the authorities tell us these people are bad. So that kind of thinking is for me very dangerous and I wanted to do what I could to show people another way of thinking and communicating that I think is more natural and more conducive to everybody getting their needs met peacefully. So, Marshall, you suggest that the NVC process you've outlined removes a lot of this um, propensity towards violence. Why don't you just start by going over the four steps in the NVC process? Well, the four steps are basically two steps. The The process is designed to help us answer two questions. What's alive in us? What's alive in us? Now, that's not new. Every culture I work in, and I work with many throughout the world, when they get together, the first thing they ask is, what's alive in you? They don't say those words in English-speaking countries. They say it this way. How are you? French-speaking countries. Como talez-vous? Spanish. Como está usted? Rwanda. Amakuru. It's a natural question to care about how people are. So nonviolent communication says, let's learn how to be honest about how we are. Not tell each other what we think the other person is, how we are. So that's one of the central questions of nonviolent communication. The other central question is, what would make life more wonderful? So nonviolent communication tries to connect us in a way with other people so that they see what's alive in us and what would make life more wonderful. And we can see what's alive in them and what would make life more wonderful for them. And my experience has been when people can connect at that level, whatever the conflict, they can find ways of resolving it in which everybody's needs get met peacefully, where people give to one another from the heart, willingly. Now, the four steps that you mentioned, there's four pieces of information that we need to know how to exchange in order to make it clear to people what's alive in us, and what would make life more wonderful. And break it down. What are the steps that make it alive, and what are the steps that refer to wonderful? First of all, to tell people specifically what they're doing that is or is not contributing to our well-being, and to be very specific about that, not to mix in any diagnosis or any analysis. We call that a clear observation. The observation step, right. And then, once we've done that, we're honest with people, but we're honest with them from the heart by telling them what's alive in us when they do that. And that, more specifically, is how we feel, what emotions we feel, and we connect our feelings to our needs. And then we follow that up with the other question, what would make life more wonderful? And we answer that with a very clear request, not using any fuzzy language, but exactly... What would we like back from that person at this moment in response to what we have said, in response to the fact that some of our needs are not getting met by their behavior? We're happy to have actors Linda Rodek and Scott Chereau here with us today who are occasionally going to give voice to some of these concepts and 
role play some with Marshall. Uh, Linda's going to give us a brief before and after demonstration of NVC uh, to get us started here. Uh, this is right from Marshall's book. So here's the before scene. Linda as a frustrated mom of a teenager. Thomas, I've told you a million times to keep this living room clean. You make me crazy. Pick up all these socks now or you're not getting to use the car tonight. Okay, so Marshall, let's start with the before shot here. I'm guessing that this approach sounds pretty familiar to listeners who would say some of them that, well, there's a firm threat of punishment there. It may accomplish the goal of getting the socks picked up. What's wrong with the picture, though? Well, what's wrong with the picture is that uh, it looks like the mother has single-mindedness of purpose to get the son to do what she wants. And whenever we have single-mindedness of purpose, it's our objective to get what we want. It leaves the other person with the impression that what's alive in them doesn't matter. And when people believe that, they don't enjoy doing what we're asking them to do, even if it's something they would generally enjoy doing. And so they're more likely then to resist doing it or do it with an energy we'll pay for. Okay, so from Marshall's book now, another option, same scenario, frustrated mom with the teenager, this time using NVC. Thomas, when I see two balls of dirty socks under the coffee table and another three next to the TV, well, I feel irritated because I'm needing more order in the rooms that we share in common. Would you be willing to put your socks in your room or in the washing machine? So how do the components work here to make this more effective in your view? She did say what she observed. She said her feeling and needs and made a clear request. She used the mechanics perfectly. But many people use the mechanics hoping that it'll be a way of getting what they want. (laughs) Because one of the hardest things for people to give up in using nonviolent communication is the objective of winning, getting what you want. Now, when I say that, many people think then I'm suggesting you be a chump and just give up your needs and give in. No, no, not at all. The objective is to create the quality of connection that will get everybody's needs met. But that means we cannot be addicted to getting our request fulfilled by the other person. It means we're more interested in the quality of connection than in any specific result. That's Marshall Rosenberg, recorded before an audience in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Information online at cnvc.org. In 2005, the National Poetry Slam competition was held in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and in one event, poets were invited to offer up originals on the topic of peacemaking. This is Samantha Scalamaro from Massachusetts with a piece called Last Jazz. Jazz piano fills the airport atrium. It's 2005, and I keep seeing young guys in sandy fatigues, army soldiers or marines getting ready to head overseas. There is a big group of the troops sitting, waiting in between flights. They're not smiling, not talking to each other. One is reading, one is talking on a cell phone. One stares at the atrium ceiling. I wonder what they're thinking. I want to say something to them, to let them know that even though I think war is the stupidest invention mankind has come up with, I want to tell them I don't hate them and that I won't spit on them when they get back from Iraq. I want to tell them that I hate that they are going. I hate that people hate, but I don't say anything. 
I get ready to go to the security checkpoint, and I look over and notice a single, young, magnolia, white soldier sitting, listening, up close at the piano bar. He's got the biggest smile you've ever seen. His head is bobbing along. You can see his perfect teeth. His uniform is crisp and clean. He looks like a 3.8 college kid on the debate team. And I realize that this scene is a Norman Rockwell painting sprung to life. The shirt of the piano player is a patchwork pattern, muted green, maroon, and black to match his skin. I can't take my eyes off them, wanting to paint them again and again. This is his last jazz. And I am watching this living cover of the Saturday Evening Post. It could be 1944, 45. The musician changes to Moonlight Sonata to prove that he's a pianist. And the kid feels it in his soul. You can tell because he closes his eyes. I'm hiding behind a column so he doesn't notice that I'm staring. I feel guilty. I reach into my bag and find two of my photo cards. One has a flower, the other a butterfly. I write them fast poems because my flight leaves in a half hour. I leave the first one in the tip jar for the piano guy. Thank you for your music. It has special power. Then I walk over to the kid and ask, are you coming or going? Going, he says. I think most people never know if they are coming or going. I hand him the card and say, this is for you. And then somewhat dumbstruck, I mumble something feeble like, good luck. I can't look him in the eye, knowing that if I stayed one second longer, I'd break down and cry. The card said, may you find butterflies wherever you go. May music always bring you such joy. And may angels watch over you and keep you safe. Go with grace. And then I signed it with a smiley face. I look back over my shoulder and see him opening the card. I keep going. Don't look back again. I get to the security checkpoint, and then I lose it. Tears stream down my face, thinking they are leaving this place that's safe, and I'm going home to my warm bed, and any one of them could end up dead. I stick my gear through the x-ray machine. I'm going in slow motion. It feels like a dream. The uniform transit security administration agent notices my state. Are you going to be all right, ma'am, he asks. I sniff and nod, and with that collared green accent, he says, You just left your sweetie, huh? And I cry, shake my head no, and think, But someone just did, and they're just kids. Even the officer, I'm sure that I'm older than him. I'm awash in tears. I wave the lady behind me on, and this beautiful black man says again, Are you okay? And I say, I'm just overwhelmed by the number of soldiers still going to Iraq. He looks me in the eye, says assuringly, it's okay, they want to go. And I shake my head like, I don't know. And he takes something out of his wallet and shows me his veteran's ID to prove that he knows what he's talking about. And then he says to me, do you need a hug? And I nod an involuntary yes. He leans across the conveyor belt to comfort this unbrave woman and says, Don't worry, they'll be okay. Just pray. 
poet Samantha Scalamaro. I have today signed an executive order providing for the establishment of a Peace Corps. This corps will be a pool of trained men and women sent overseas by the United States government to help foreign countries meet their urgent needs for skilled manpower. With those words in 1961, President John F. Kennedy set in motion a program that over 45 years has sent 185,000 Americans to all corners of the world on a mission to help over 135 countries with survival and sustainability needs and to promote a better understanding of Americans. In a recent Peace Talk show, Carol Boss talked with returned volunteers from throughout the Peace Corps' 45-year-plus history, including Joseph Garcia, Lauren Kohler, and Dave Davenport. How does the Peace Corps create peace? I think that Peace Corps may possibly be, through our reputation and the work we've done over these 45 years, could possibly be the salvation of U.S. foreign policy, in my opinion. A situation has developed where a lot of people with very little international experience are at the forefront of U.S. foreign policy. They aren't educated in the history, the culture, the language of these countries, cultures. And Dave? Well, I think um, that uh, America's um, image in the world is at a as far as I can imagine, an all-time low. It, it just could hardly be worse. And um, I wish that the Peace Corps, I mean, my, my hope for the Peace Corps is that it's able to expand into some Muslim countries, more Muslim countries. I really think we need uh, to uh, uh, get young and old, get, get Americans abroad, learning about uh, other cultures, learning about other religions, learning other languages, and uh, uh, creating a, a, a much more positive uh, image of our country abroad. How about a couple of stories about the impact that your work had on the people that you lived and worked with and, and the community? Lauren? Yeah, actually, um, I, I just finished in June 2005 of my service, um, and in December I returned. And at the time when I was in my community in Panama, we had um, uh, submitted a proposal and received funding to build a local community center. Um, a, mun- a municipal office. And so in December, um, we had inaugurated it in June, right before I had um, uh, my close of service. So when I returned in December, obviously I went back and saw the building. Everything was great. And I was asking somebody about that day, and they were um, telling me about how well everything went and then stopped and asked and said, Lorena, were you were you there that day? Had you already left? or?" And I guess the funny thing was was that I actually you know got up and spoke at the inauguration, helped cut the ribbon, and um, the ironic but wonderful part about that was that they didn't really remember if I was there, which meant that it was something so important to them and that they felt so much of a part of that it wasn't something that someone came in and implanted and then left, that it was actually um, integral in the community's um, development process, and that was one of the most wonderful things wonderful feelings, that it wasn't what I was doing, it was what people were motivated to do for themselves. Dave? Yeah, uh, I was um, speaking about impact, uh, what impact we had. Um, If I may speak to my more recent Peace Corps experience, I went back to Thailand uh, last year uh, with a, a, a portion of the Peace Corps called the Crisis Corps, which is designed for former Peace Corps volunteers um, in times of crisis to go back and help the countries where they had served. And so uh, I went back with several others to Thailand 
following the tsunami. And um, we were originally supposed to be doing uh, building houses. But um, when we got there, this was three months after the tsunami had occurred, it turned out that there were tons of other groups who were doing exactly that. In fact, the Thai military was there. They were like the, the our Army Corps of Engineers or something equivalent to it. And they had all sorts of equipment. They had 3,000 soldiers pumping up these houses for, for villagers. And we, you know, we really didn't have a, a job. And uh, so I started going around the camp with a young Thai woman who was working on her master's degree in psychology. One of the things I began to notice sitting in the, the rooms with these families, the, these were people jammed in little tiny rooms, you know, 13 feet by 18 feet. All their possessions, what possessions they had, were on the floor. Uh, the, the walls were terribly flimsy. There was no place to hang anything. And I realized that for a very small amount of money, and uh, with a little bit of effort, our group could put together shelves and clothes hangers and simple things uh, to help people store their their belongings off the floor, off the damp floors. And so um, we got a little money together and started a, a little manufacturing process. And we built uh, shelves. Every We put in every room in the camp um, a long eight-foot shelf with a clothes rod underneath it. And we built cabinets and uh, bookshelves and shelves and uh, it it was it really was marvelous these were these were people were in in really terrible shape and i honestly had the sense that we were doing something that that in a small way made their day-to-day lives a lot better i i felt very happy about it returned peace corps volunteers dave davenport lauren kohler and joseph garcia this is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, with highlights from our radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. The entire programs from which these selections came can be heard online at peacetalksradio.com. You can also find other links on these peacemaking topics and learn how your tax-deductible contribution can help support this series, all at peacetalksradio.com. And we'll be back with a Nobel Peace Prize laureate right after this break. and you're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. The Peace Talks radio series explores nonviolent conflict resolution strategies for everyday life and throughout history. Occasionally, we feature former Nobel Peace Prize winners, like Mairead McGuire, who, along with Betty Williams, won the prize in 1976 for organizing mass nonviolent protests to the conflict in Northern Ireland. Ms. McGuire's large-scale activism was touched off by a personal tragedy. And... August 1976, one of my younger sisters, Anne, took four of her children on a walk to go around to visit my mother. 
and lovely summer, sunny day, three o'clock in the day. And there was um, a clash between an active service unit of the Irish Republican Army and the British Army patrol. And the British Army shot Danny Lennon, an IRA man, 19, through the head. And his car veered up onto the footpath and pinned three of my sister's children and her against school railings. The three children were killed and Andrew was only six weeks old and John was two and Joanne was eight uh, and Anne herself was dangerously ill and not really expected to live. So this tragedy touched absolutely everyone. It just was the the final straw in a sense because many had died. And um, so... I remember going down to a television studio and saying, may I go on television and saying, look, this this violence has got to stop. You know, there's bound to be another way that we can solve this. Do you ever get um, challenged at all by people who challenge the notion of talk about nonviolence and peacemaking? And, and this is in consideration of the many fears that people around the world and certainly in this country have about terrorism, for example. Well, you know, we we need to, to work so that we don't have terrorism in the world. But the best way in which to do that is to uphold human rights and international laws, but to deal with the root causes of violence. And it's very important to ask the question, why do young people... Um, use violence. I lived in Northern Ireland and I seen young people within my own community taking up the gun for the armed struggle in Ireland. And I had to try to understand what possesses a young person to take a gun or to go on hunger strike to the death or to be a suicide bomber. Um, and what I came to realize is that we're each born with an innate sense of justice and human dignity. And when that justice is abused by states or governments and that human dignity is denied, when our basic civil rights to a right to food, a right to home, a right to our own country, um, when those things are taken away from us, then we get very, very angry. Uh, And what do we do with that anger? Uh, Because we must, in all consciousness, protest injustice. You cannot sit back and say, it doesn't matter, I'm doing nothing. But when you see injustice, be it poverty, abuse of human rights, be it invasion and occupation of your country, you must resist. But we have to learn the ways of non-violent resistance because violence is always wrong. You know, armed uh, suicide bombing, that's wrong. But if we don't try to tackle the root causes of why people go to this extreme and all call for of despair, it's a call of despair, then I'm afraid we are not going to be able to solve these problems. You know, Americans, there are many Americans now who feel fear about terrorism, things that this population has never felt before. If you were a member of the Bush administration back in 2001 or brought in as an advisor to them, what would you have advocated as an appropriate response to the 9-11 acts of terror? Well, I would say to them that uphold human rights and civil liberties. Uphold your constitution. Um, do not use abuse against either in your own country or others. 
You know, the American administration knows what to do. Do you know why? In Northern Ireland, when we had our violent ethnic conflict, the two communities couldn't get out of it. But the government in London and the government in Dublin and the south of Ireland and the American administration encouraged us speak to the terrorists, bring on board those who are using violence, bring them into the circle, listen to why they're using violence, have all-inclusive dialogue and negotiation. And they helped us come into our peace process. Um, Senator Mitchell came over a 100 times to Northern Ireland and made it possible for the different conflicting parties, including those who represented the IRA, i.e. Jerry Adams and Sinn Féin. It was the American administration that encouraged us to make peace through all-inclusive dialogue. They know how to help the peace process in Iraq, and I really believe it's time for the American administration to, to turn back from the negative, destructive foreign policy politics that they're using and implement the methods that they helped in Northern Ireland. 1976 Nobel Peace Prize laureate Mairead Maguire from Northern Ireland. Whenever there's an attempt to resolve a difference, whether it's inside ourselves or outside of ourselves, it's peacemaking. That's Peace Talks co-founder and original host Suzanne Kreider, whose full-time job is as a leadership coach and trainer who's trying to help all of us resolve conflict in the workplace by communicating more effectively and by not putting off those dreaded conversations that so often hang over some workplaces. On a Peace Talks episode, we heard Suzanne coaching a listener who, shall we say, had issues with her boss. I have a boss who bullies. It's not management. It is bullying. She is vindictive, selfish. She lies. She's amoral. And she's always right. And she is um, holds on to power and always wants to win by the use of bullying. This is not uncommon. So what can we do about this? First, I want to say that the work I do is really for helping you talk with people who are reasonable. And I don't want to make a judgment, but this person might be unreasonable. Um, This person could have a personality disorder, could be narcissistic. I'm not a psychologist. I don't diagnose people. But all I know is, is the work I do works with reasonable people. Um, that said, I would invite you to notice how you talk about this person because so much of um, the work I try to do is really around emotional intelligence. I try to help people become aware of their stories about a situation and about another person. So I noticed you used um, adjectives like vindictive, selfish, um, amoral. And I'm not saying that you're wrong about that. I'm just inviting you to notice that those are adjectives. So could, in, could you instead describe some of the specific behaviors that this person is doing that upset you? She twists things that people say. There is never any appreciation in her words. Um, she's, she already assumes she's right. There is no softness or appreciation. Right. So you're a very perceptive person. You did a good job shifting from adjectives to describing her behavior. Okay. And does that feel different for you? Yes, 
but I still feel that she is capable of hurting people. What I like to point out to people is most of us don't wake up in the morning ready to attack other people unless we've been attacked ourselves. So another thing that I would invite you to do is just to see her as a victim. We don't know her story, and I'm not asking you to be a therapist, and I'm not asking you to find out what her story is. But what I encourage folks to do is to um, take the high road and to say, how can I be the adult in this situation? Gee, this situation really needs an adult, and my boss isn't being the adult. So what can I do to role model healthy communication behavior? And I would encourage you to be the person that you want her to be. You, right. want her, you want her to be appreciative, then you can start appreciating her. And That's this, a good idea. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a challenge, but she's got to be doing something right. You want hers to be soft? How can you be soft? Okay. Okay? And one more thing. When, she, when you say she assumes she's right, uh-huh. I want to encourage you to point out to her when she isn't right. Part of our job is to point out when we're uncomfortable. If she comes in and... Uh, interrupts people so to point that out oh excuse me i kind of do the colombo thing oh, oh excuse, excuse me I don't, I don't know if you noticed this or not but i wasn't finished speaking <laughs> or and i kind of giggle too or excuse me I, i'm sorry could i finish you just do you know just like a little soft thing like that the problem with bullies here's the deal with bullies nobody's ever told people who are bullies what they're doing wrong that's your job i welcome you to start doing that with her okay Thank you very much. Leadership coach Suzanne Kreider talking with a radio listener. Often on Peace Talks, we focus on the challenge of peaceful parenting. We talked recently with author Laura Ramirez, whose book, Keepers of the Children, Native American Wisdom in Parenting, caught our attention. Laura is Anglo, but her husband of 15 years is Larry Ramirez, a member of the Pasquayaki tribe. They have two boys, Dakota and Colt, and live in northern Nevada. In her book, Laura Ramirez uses little-known Native American concepts and teaching stories to help parents raise children in a manner that she says allows them to unfold the gifts within their hearts. Peace Talks host Carol Boss asked Laura to contrast Anglo and Indian cultures when it comes to child-rearing. Well, the differences are huge, starting with the difference in discipline. Um, In the mainstream world, typically, we punish our children to try to keep them in line, whereas in the Native world, they believe in teaching a child to develop the self-discipline to make the right choices on his own. So that right there is a very big difference, and it creates a very different dynamic between the parent and the child. Uh, another really important difference is the way Native people see children. You know, it wasn't too long ago in this culture that women and children were seen as property. And a lot of parents today still view their children as their property. Whereas in the Native American culture, children are seen as adults' spiritual equals. So it's a very different way of seeing the child. Let's talk a little bit about um, conflict resolution. How important is that to teach children, the skills of conflict resolution? Well, it, it's, it's very important because, you know, there, there's, there's conflict all over the place. There's conflict within the family. There's conflict at school. And there's conflict in the world. 
And when you teach children conflict resolution skills, you, you, you teach them tolerance. You teach them how to be humane. And you do that by inviting them to consider another perspective. And uh, it's interesting. We do this in the Native American culture by using something called the talking stick. And, you know, all the talking stick really is is just uh, a symbol. It's a tool. And in the Native culture and in my family, when there's a conflict or when there's a disagreement about, you know, what we want to do, we sit in a circle, and the circle is very important. The circle is, is, is symbolic of this idea that we're all equal. And again, there's, there, there's that concept of spiritual equality again, that we're all equal, that no one's first, no one has to be last. We're all on equal footing when we lead with our heart, when we express what's in our heart. So you sit in a circle, and you have the talking stick in the center of the circle, and when someone feels compelled to speak, they pick up the stick. When they pick up the stick, that's a sign for everyone else to be silent and to listen, not to think about, you know, what they're going to say when it's their turn to hold the stick, but to actually listen and to consider the words of the speaker and, and, and to consider this person's pain. Because we know whenever there's conflict, there's, there's pain. There's needs that aren't being met. And um, when that person has has spoken what's in their heart and, and, and in our family and in, you know, the Native American world, it's done by using I, by saying, I feel this way. Because what you're doing is you're taking responsibility for your feelings. You're not blaming anybody else. You're saying, I feel this way. When, when you're finished speaking, you put down the stick or you pass it to someone else and the next person speaks. And in this way, everybody gets a chance to be listened to. And this is very, very important for children to be listened to, to feel like they're seen, to feel like they're visible, to feel like their voices count. Because you've got to remember, you know, uh, we grew up in a time when there was a saying that children should be seen and not heard. And when you raise your children in that way, They'll find ways to make themselves visible to you, and it may not be a way that, uh, that you like very much. Laura Ramirez, author of Keepers of the Children, Native American Wisdom and Parenting, a recent guest on Peace Talks Radio. We'll close this special hour of excerpts from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution with a clip from a program we aired on a recent Memorial Day weekend which simply noted the names of just some of those who had died in the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Soldiers, contractors, civilians, and journalists. We called our program The Cost of War. On April 3, 2003, U.S. journalist Michael Kelly was killed while traveling with the U.S. Army's 3rd Infantry Division in Iraq. Kelly and an officer from the 3rd Infantry Division of the U.S. Army died when their Humvee crashed while evading Iraqi fire, according to a news report. Kelly was 46 and at the time was editor-at-large of the Atlantic Monthly and the chief editorial advisor of National Journal. A missile explosion killed Ali Josabia Jassem on March 29, 2003. The Iraqi man was 21 years old. 
Marine Corporal Ronald R. Payne Jr. died in combat in Afghanistan on May 7, 2004. He was 27 from Lakeland, Florida. A South African named Jacques Oustuis, known to all as Usi, was working as a private security guard on May 3, 2005, when he was ambushed on the road between Tikrit and Mosul and was killed. Army Specialist Clinton R. Upchurch was killed in action on January 7, 2006. A roadside bomb detonated near his Humvee, and his patrol came under small arms fire in Samara, Iraq. Upchurch was 31, from Garden City, Kansas. Combat gunfire on the streets of Baghdad on January 12, 2004, took the life of a 10-year-old Iraqi boy, named Mustafa Jamal Shekili. Ali Salman, a 31-year-old Iraqi man, was shot and killed at a U.S. checkpoint in a Baghdad neighborhood. Army Staff Sergeant Gary A. Valiant from Trujillo, Puerto Rico, died when his tank ran over a roadside bomb in Iraq on September 5, 2004. Valiant was 41. Sabah Hamid Jusum, a 26-year-old Iraqi citizen, was hit and killed by a bullet near Kirkuk on May 14, 2003. A Croatian truck driver named Ivan Pavcevic, working for U.S. troops in Iraq, was killed in an attack on a convoy of trucks, February 8, 2005. You've been listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. You can hear the complete programs that were excerpted today by visiting us online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear this program again, order CDs, sign up to be on our mailing list, and importantly, you can also go there to make a tax-deductible contribution to help support this ongoing radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Much of our work is supported by listeners like you making contributions large and small. Find out how you can help at peacetalksradio.com. We also have support from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico. The Peace Tales CD project featuring Peace Tales for Kids, a storytelling CD, available at peacetales.org. Peace Talks is produced at Cedar Creek Studios and at KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Theme music by Ali Adelman. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening.